So we're starting this series on the Lord's Prayer, and I mean, this would have to be one of the most familiar prayers that, um, that anybody knows. I mean, this is prayed by millions of people all around the world all the time. Actually, I heard a, a story a little while ago. There was a guy called Alonzo Mourning. He used to play uh, NBA basketball in the States. He used to play for the uh, Charlotte Hornets. And one day before the game, the coach was giving the team a massive rev up inspiring them to play their best. And as he finished the talk, he turned to Alonzo and said, now just before we go out uh, and play, would you mind leading us all as a team in the Lord's Prayer? And uh, Alonzo's teammate next to him just started cracking up because he knew that Alonzo didn't know the Lord's Prayer at all. But uh, sure enough, Alonzo said, all right, everybody, let's bow our heads and pray. And so they they bowed their heads. And uh, after a brief silence, he started in. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And everybody looked up and just started cracking up. But his teammate next to him looked up and said, you do know the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) So it's not as familiar as you might think. But uh, this is really well known. And uh, part of the reason we're going to work through over the next five weeks, we're going to work through the Lord's Prayer phrase by phrase in an effort to uh, ignite a culture of prayer within our church and encourage us to pray more. Uh, It's probably safe to say that prayer is something that a lot of Christians struggle with. Uh, A lot of us find it hard. Uh, A lot of the time it can feel like drudgery. It can feel like a chore. It's just tough to do. And I wonder whether part of the problem is that we don't really fully understand what prayer is. And uh, if we get get a hold of what Jesus is giving us to pray here, I think that it has the power to enrich our prayer life by shaping our understanding of what it actually means to pray. So I thought we'd start by saying it, and we'll say it each week. Um, I've got the words up here on screen, and we'll, we'll just say together the Lord's Prayer, if that's okay. Now, uh, this is a more modern version, right, than some of you are going to be used to. So uh, if, if you've just, I know some of you have got the King James Version just down pat, but um, this one doesn't have the these and the thys and the thous in it, okay? I know some of you still think Jesus spoke Shakespearean English, but we'll follow this one for now, all right? Ready? Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray those words and we pray that you'd help us to mean them and to understand them. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be our teacher, that you'd guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're just going to take the first couple of phrases of this prayer and Jesus starts by giving us a way to address God. He says, when you pray, say, our Father. I don't know what you think of when you think of God as Father, or how you respond to the idea of addressing God as Father. For some people, this is quite a difficult idea because of connotations they have of their own Father. If those connotations aren't positive, it's often quite hard to think of God as Father. That can be very negative. For others, the idea of thinking about God as a Father, it conjures up these images of of intimacy, of closeness, of proximity to God, and uh, that's a good thing. But when Jesus gives his disciples these words and he he gives them this way in particular of addressing God, there are some specific ideas 
that he is triggering in their minds, particularly within the Jewish psyche. Um, Jesus wasn't the only one to pray to God as Father, but there is a long tradition within Judaism of addressing God as Father, and it goes right back to the Exodus. Flick back to, keep your finger in Matthew uh, chapter 6, but flick back to Exodus 4 for just a minute. This is where really the idea of God as Father started for Israel. In the context, it's a pretty well-known story. God has called Moses to stand before Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptian dynasty, and demand that Pharaoh let the Hebrew slaves go, the Israelite people go, out of Egypt to worship God in the wilderness. And so Moses stands before Pharaoh, and one of the things he says in in, uh, Exodus 4, verse 22, this is God speaking through Moses, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And that's exactly how the story goes. God takes the life of each firstborn son within Egypt. But notice that he's talking about Israel here as, as a son. And immediately you think some of you are hearing already that the echoes of the New Testament and Jesus is the firstborn son. But before Jesus was the firstborn son, Israel is addressed here as God's firstborn son. Son, And there's this unique relationship between Israel as son and God as father. And all this in the context of an exodus that God is bringing about. That's important. An exodus, God's bringing a people out of oppression, out of slavery, out of bondage, into redemption, freedom, liberation, newness of life. God is performing this exodus and Israel is going to be his exodus People. That's what it is for Israel to be the son, the son brought out of slavery, brought into freedom. Flick over to Second Samuel chapter 7, <clears throat> where this idea keeps on developing. And here God is promising David, King David, the greatest king in all Israel, that he would give him a son who would sit on his throne, whose throne would be established forever. Verse 13, 2 Samuel 7, says, He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, in the first instance, God here is talking about Solomon, because he goes on to talk about when he does wrong, I'll punish him and rebuke him. But beyond that, there's a promise of a greater son to come the one who would sit on David's throne, the one who would inherit these promises, the one whose kingdom would never end and God would establish it over all the earth. These promises are swirling around in the first century and Jesus walks onto the scene and he starts addressing God as Father. He starts talking about my Father, my Father, my Father. And he wasn't the only one to use that term, but Jesus seemed to use it in a unique way. Just a few chapters later in Matthew, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son has chosen to reveal Him. No one knows the Son except the Father. Jesus is is presenting Himself as this unique Son, as this one who stands in a unique relationship with God, the Father. And what He's saying, I think, partly at least, is I am the one whom God promised to David. I'm that Son. The one whom God said, I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. He'll sit on the the throne of David forever. His kingdom will be established. Jesus is saying, subtly, I am that son, and I am the unique son, and God is the unique father to me. 
He's the promised Messiah, the Davidic Messiah. And so when Jesus turns to his disciples then, and he says, now when you pray, say, our Father. There's a lot more going on here than Jesus just saying, God's your Father, God's your Dad, you can be close to him and you can be intimate with him. Jesus is drawing his disciples into an entire story that goes right back to Exodus. He's saying, I am the unique son and you now are the new Exodus people. You are now, see this is more than just you praying to God as far, this is you signing on to Israel's story. Jesus is saying, you are the messianic people. You are the new Exodus people. And Jesus is going to do something even greater than what Moses did. Moses brought the people out of Exodus, uh, out of slavery, physical slavery. Jesus is now the unique son who is undertaking this new exodus, this greater exodus of bringing all humanity out of slavery to sin and Satan and self and bringing them into freedom and bringing them into liberation and bringing them into newness of life. All that is going on, believe it or not, within the word Father. You might think that's a bit of a stretch. But this is our entry point into a story. Jesus is inviting us into an entire narrative. This is part of what the Lord's Prayer is doing. Not just giving you words to pray, it's giving you a story to shape you, within which you find out who you are. We are the Exodus people who now stand in relationship to God as Father, just as Israel did in the Exodus. And that alone, by itself, you might think that's drawing a bit of a long bow, but then you start to put it next to the next, to the next phrase. Jesus goes on and says, don't, don't just address God as Father, but then we pray, hallowed be your name. And that's a bit of a weird phrase in English because we don't tend to use that word much, hallowed anymore. It's a bit of an old English word. But the idea behind it is one of holiness. The word means literally to make holy, hagios, to make holy, make something holy, to take it out of ordinary profane usage and separate it for holy, sanctified, consecrated usage. In the Old Testament, you could do this with various things. Sometimes people were made holy. Priests were set apart for God's service. Clothing was set apart for God's service. The priestly garments were taken aside from ordinary usage, set apart for God's usage. Artifacts of the temple were set apart from ordinary usage. They were made holy. They were sanctified. They were hagios. They were hallowed. But the difficulty here is that God's talking about himself. Jesus is talking about God's own name being hallowed. How do you set God apart from ordinary usage? How do you make God more holy than he already is? Surely God's holy enough. How are we supposed to make God's name more holy? And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's leaning again on a particular story within Israel's history. There's a couple of times in the Old Testament where this idea of God's name being made holy crops up. And one in particular in Ezekiel 20. Just flick back there for a minute. Now the context in Ezekiel 20 is that God's people find themselves again in slavery. Already the connection to the Exodus. You start to see what Jesus is doing. Again, God's people, now they've been exiled out of their land They've been dispossessed in Babylon. They're in a foreign land, away from temple, away from land. 
They've lost their national identity. And God here through Ezekiel starts promising this hope beyond exile. He starts promising that exile is not going to be the final word. And in verse 42 of Ezekiel 20, sorry, verse 41, God makes a specific promise. He says, I will accept you as fragrant incense when I bring you out from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered and I will be proved holy through you in the sight of the nations. That's the exact same, it's the Hebrew equivalent of the word Jesus uses in Matthew 6. And God is saying, I will be proved. You see the, the, the association now. God's not saying, I'm going to be made more holy than I already am. It's impossible. God's saying, my holiness will be proved. My holiness will be revealed. I will be seen to be holy, and my name will be honored, and my name will be hallowed, as all nations come to know that I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh, the Lord. And so here is Jesus now telling us to pray, hallowed be your name. And I think there's more going on here than simply saying, recognize God's holiness. Jesus is evoking a story. Jesus is evoking this narrative in Ezekiel 20, where God promises to bring people out of exile and into freedom. After all, that's how God's name in Ezekiel is going to be hallowed. That's how God's holiness is going to be proved, by God doing exactly what he did in the Exodus, bringing people out of slavery and into freedom. God's going to do again for Israel what he did through Moses. There's going to be a returning from exile. And so Jesus says, now you get to pray. Hallowed be thy name. May God's name be proved holy, not just in a vacuum, But as God goes about this liberating work of freeing people, rescuing people, and restoring humanity, exodus and return from exile, I think what's happening here is that Jesus is not just giving us a prayer to pray. He's telling us something about who he is. He's telling us something about his ministry. This is a way of explaining to his disciples what's unfolding before their eyes as Jesus goes about teaching, healing, rebuking, demonstrating who he is and revealing the Father. This is not just a prayer. This is a manifesto. This is a description of Jesus' ministry. Because Jesus is bringing people on this new exodus. Jesus is bringing people now on the real return from exile, far greater than the one that that Ezra and Nehemiah led, far greater exodus than the one Moses led. Jesus is now bringing people out of slavery into freedom, and all this is to the honoring of God's name. This is precisely what happened on the cross. Jesus even describes the cross at one point as his exodus. It's going to be a retelling. It's going to be a reenacting of Israel's story. And when Jesus dies, he does so to free us from our slavery to sin and self and Satan and all kinds of things that trap us and bind us and hold us back from who God intended us to be. And when God rises from the dead, he does so. What's happening on Easter Sunday morning is not just one man walking out of a grave. It's the new exodus. It's the returning from exile that God promised through Ezekiel. The real, not a physical returning to land, but a new, the real true return from exile that Jesus is leading. It's the fulfillment of all Israel's hopes and dreams and ambitions. Jesus is carrying the aspirations of his people now. Jesus is embodying the vocation of Israel. 
Jesus is leading us on this great return from exile. All that is in these two phrases. What's happening here is that they're telling us a story. They're evoking Israel's stories. There's echoes of the two great redemptive stories in Israel's history, the Exodus story and the return from exile story. All this to demonstrate precisely who Jesus is. The first thing that the Lord's Prayer should do for you and I is give us a story. It draws us into a story. See, prayer is not just about talking to God, saying stuff to God. Whether praise or affirmation, worship, whatever, that's all good stuff. But in the first instance, the Lord's Prayer was given to provide this narrative within which we find ourselves. We are signing on to this massive, overarching story that is stretching from creation right through to new creation of God rescuing, redeeming, liberating, restoring, renewing, recreating you and I and all creation. This is what we're signing on to. This is the scope of the Lord's Prayer. Can you see how far we've come from just this little bedtime prayer you pray at night, you know, before you switch out the light? Pray the Lord's... It, it, it is that, but there's so much more to it. This is a whole narrative because each of us live out of a narrative. And Jesus is saying, this is the story that makes sense of the world. It's this returning from exile. It's this new exodus. And all this is what's being evoked when we talk about God as Father. When we talk about the hallowing of God's name, it's in the context of restoration, renewal, and liberation. It was in Exodus. It was in Ezekiel. It is in Jesus' ministry. And it is today. That's our story. Heaven knows there's enough stories out there that will compete for our attention in culture story of consumerism, the, the, the myth of technological economic progress as saviour, the story of work and business as the path to fulfilment. We're all shaped by stories all the time. We're all living out of one narrative or another. And what Jesus offers us is a story that makes sense of life, a story within which we find ourselves, and a story then within which we pray. Because these are words that we are to take on our lips and we're praying. And as we pray this prayer, we're actually participating in moving the story forward. Because we're not just praying to God as Father, we're praying that God's name would be hallowed today. We're praying that God would bring about something of that new exodus today. We're praying that somehow in our own day and in the smallest of circumstances, God would outwork the victory of Calvary in our midst. That God would implement what he accomplished at the cross and in the empty tomb within our own contexts. And as we pray, we're praying, God, bring about new exodus. Bring about a returning from exile, one life at a time, one situation at a time. I sat in a hospital room at Starship Hospital this week praying for little Lexi Hardy, little baby in our church, praying that she'd get well again after a pretty serious illness, praying that God would restore, praying that God would heal, praying that God would renew her. And as I prayed for her and as I, as I was praying for her subsequently, I had in my mind this idea of the Lord's Prayer. How do you pray for people like that? In the context of this prayer Jesus gives us, what does it mean for God's name to be hallowed in that situation? What does it mean for God to bring about a new exodus? Because really that's what we were praying for. We're praying for God's restoring power 
to be released into the life of this little baby. We know God doesn't promise us he's going to heal in every situation, but we're praying, God, bring about a return from exile, in a sense, in this child's life. Bring about a, a restoration. Bring about liberation. Free her from this illness, this sickness. Bring about newness. Bring about freedom. It's this journey out of slavery to whatever, into freedom, into redemption, and that through all this, God's name would be hallowed. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're not just praying that we would recognize God's holiness. We're praying that others would recognize God, that may your name be hallowed throughout all creation. That's the idea. May your name be hallowed as you reveal your holiness in the lives of other people within the world as you release your redeeming power. Even in these small little situations, may your name be honored as you bring about something of that new exodus, even today, something about that returning from exile, some outworking of what you did on the cross, release it into this situation. You know when you get that sense of the big story, I think it brings prayer alive. It, re- it releases prayer from being this drudgery. We just pray for this, pray for that, needs, wants. What. Suddenly prayer is a participation in this ongoing story of God outworking this, this recreating thing that he's doing. Every morning from, from Tuesday to Friday, I, I sit down at my desk at 20 past 10, exactly 20 past 10, and I have in front of me a list of um, pastoral care needs within the church. And, you know, it's a bullet-pointed list, and each one's about a sentence long. But every one of those sentences is a story. Every one of those descriptions, every one of those people, there's a story there. There's a context. There's something that God's doing. And as I've thought about those things even this week in the context of the Lord's Prayer, it's taken on new life for me. It's, it's made it something more than just praying for uh, a job for so-and-so, praying for a restored marriage, praying for a child who's ill. I've found myself caught up in this story, caught up in this massive work of Jesus, and my meager prayers are somehow a participation in moving that story forward. God, come and do a little new exodus in this marriage. Come and bring about a little returning from exile within this situation. And in doing so, may your name be hallowed. May your name be seen to be holy. May you be glorified. May all creation resound with your praise. That's what we're praying. And as we pray it, what happens is that often, more often than not, we're prompted to actually live it. Because I don't know about you, one of the things I find, I'm praying for someone, and then you just have this little voice of conviction that maybe you should do something about that situation. This is so annoying. Have you found this? You know, you're just praying. I'm only, I'm only intending to pray. You know, I just want to do my bit here so that I can... <laughs> you're pleased to know that's how I pray for you. But you know, you're praying away, and then God will just drop something into my head about what are you doing? Have you made contact? Maybe you could pick up the phone. Maybe you could look so-and-so up for a coffee. And through this, God is somehow inviting us not just to pray the Lord's Prayer, but to live the Lord's Prayer. This is an entire way of living, a way of being shaped, not just words we say and certainly not just a formula we recite, but a story that we then actively outwork and we start becoming the answers to our own prayers. Not that it's all about us, but God hallows his name through us. It's interesting that in Ezekiel, when you read that chapter, chapter 20, you find God says to Israel, 
My name will be proved holy through you in the sight of all nations. He doesn't say, you're going to go out there and prove me to be holy. You're going to do some great thing. You're going to make me uh, look good. God says, I will hallow my name through you. My name will be proved holy. But it's going to happen through Israel. It's going to happen through them. Israel becomes the hands and feet for God's own holiness to be seen and made manifest. So it is today. We become the way in which God hallows his name. It's not all about you doing your thing, making God look good, but we are the instruments through which God brings honor and glory to his own name. I spoke at this conference uh, last weekend, and um, as I was just talking to some of the students there, I noticed during the course of the, of the week there was one guy at this conference who was really left out, consistently left out, just didn't have someone to sit with um, during meal times. Uh, didn't, just didn't have people to talk to. He was on the outer. And he was, he was quite socially awkward. He was difficult to talk to. Um, and for that reason, people just kind of moved away from him. And I tried during the course of the week just to make a small effort, and I'm no great example of this, but just to make a small effort to sit with him a couple of times uh, during meals, to strike up conversation with him if I was standing next to him in line, or try and use his name when I saw him, and just try and do what I could for a few days. He lives in Wellington, so I'm not going to see him again, but just to try and be there to help him be a little, feel a little more human in the context of that conference. And again, as I think about this now in the context of the Lord's Prayer, to me it brings on new meaning. But somehow, not anything to do with me, but God's name in those situations is being hallowed. That somehow maybe God is bringing about a little new exodus in that guy's life. Maybe bringing him from loneliness into companionship, if only for a brief few days. God is at work in those moments, rescuing, restoring, redeeming, renewing, and recreating, and he's doing it through us. And as I spent that fraction of time with him, God's name is being hallowed. God's name is being honored. A little return from exile is going on. When you pray for someone in need, when you reach out to someone in need and seek to practically meet that need, when you look someone up for coffee that you haven't seen for ages just to be a friend and encourage them, God's name is being hallowed. There's restoration that's going on. When you build someone up with your words and just encourage someone and speak some life into them, God's name is being hallowed. His holiness is being revealed and there's a little returning from exile that's going on. When you are in some tiny little way a part of God bringing someone out of whatever it is, addiction, into freedom. When you are somehow a piece in what God is doing to bring someone out of anger, into peace. There's a returning from exile that's going on. God's name is being hallowed. When you're used by God in some way, conversation, an email, a text, a prayer, or whatever, to help someone move from being a victim to taking back control, making decisions, becoming healthy. There's a little returning from exile that's going on. There's a little new exodus that's happening. And the Lord's Prayer is coming about. The Lord's prayer is being answered in some small way because God's name is being hallowed. And whenever we do these things, whenever we pray these things, we do it with an eye on that day when God's name will finally be hallowed by all creation. 
when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the ultimate fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer. And it's going to happen. One day the Lord's Prayer will be answered, believe it or not. It's going to happen. All creation will resound with the Lord's praise and all nations will know that Yahweh is the Lord. Until that day, what we're praying is that a piece of that future would come into the present. That God would just bring a piece of that into the present now that the kingdom would start to take shape among us. You can see why Jesus goes on to pray, thy kingdom come, can't you? It just flows. That's what we're going to look at next week. But this is exactly where the prayer goes. God's name is hallowed as his kingdom takes shape on earth, on earth, just as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for, and that's what we're participating in. This has the power, I think, to transform prayer. This leaves the drudgery and and just the chore and the mundaneness behind, and it starts to give us a much bigger picture. In the first instance, prayer is not saying anything. In the first instance, prayer is not about words you say, stuff you do, what you think you can accomplish. Prayer is our conscious awareness of the presence of God, approaching him as father in such a way that we're swept into this incredible drama of redemption that is going on all around us. And as that happens, as we start to be shaped by that story, we pray into that story that God would move it forward in our own day and we participate in that story through our lives in bringing about precisely what Jesus prayed, that God's name would be hallowed and he would be seen to be exactly what he is, holy. Let's just take a minute now. We're talking about prayer over the next few weeks. Let's just be in this attitude of prayer. Let's think this through and pray for the hallowing of God's name. Let's just pray together and draw to mind situations in your own life where God's name needs to be hallowed. Maybe something that you personally are dealing with right now. And you're in need of that new exodus in your own life, that returning from exile. Maybe there's something that God needs to take you out of and lead you into, to move you away from and lead you into freedom and newness of life to bring about that returning from exile. Father, we pray for those situations right now. We ask that your name would be hallowed as you liberate people with the love of Jesus. God, we think about situations that we're aware of around us, people that are struggling, people who are hurting, people who are trapped in darkness and don't know you, people we know who are outside of the kingdom. We pray, God, that you would bring about that new exodus in their own lives, that you'd liberate, that you would restore, that you'd reclaim their lives, and that as that happens, your name would be holy, that you would be proved holy. Father, I pray that through this prayer you would rescue us out of darkness and bring us into light again and rescue our prayer lives from being trapped in a bunch of needs and wants and shopping list requests that we bring to you and sweep us up into this incredible story of redemption that you're bringing about, this renewing work that is happening through Jesus even now. Father, make us so conscious of that story And this week, Father, give us eyes to see it happening around us. Give us eyes to see you at work and let us pray into those situations fervently and honestly and let us open ourselves up to you, Lord, to make us available to be part of the answer to that prayer.
to be part of bringing about that restoration, that liberation that happens through Jesus, all to the honouring of your name, all to the hallowing of your name. We pray that your name would be hallowed in our lives, in our church, in our community and throughout our nation. We pray that your holiness would be revealed. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.